So I moved here in 07 in a 1977 Royal International Diplomat travel trailer. Okay. Had brown shag carpeting. It's really cool. <laughs> Twin beds. So I moved it onto a vineyard here in Paso, um, owned by a woman named Kathy, and it would just be me and her out there. Um, and it was all sustainable and biodynamic and just a really beautiful place. I had this crazy dog Fantastic. named Jack. And I ended there for a couple of years. Welcome to the Winemakers Podcast. In each episode, we meet one winemaker and get the chance to hear their story on their turf. We walk through the vineyard, taste their wine, and share a home-cooked meal. If you haven't already, visit thewinemakersseries.com to order your season one case, one bottle for each winemaker. Then pull cork, press play, and enjoy. Valia Fromm is not afraid to try new things. The winemaker and owner of the aptly named label Desperada marches to the beat of her own drum. Her passion and determination are the backbone of her success, and her bold, free-spirited nature is reflected in her work as an emerging talent out of Paso Robles. It's no surprise that she's decided to make a home in this region, where the maverick wild spirit prevails. Given the 40-odd grape varietals and the broad palette Paso offers, it's the perfect place to fuel Valia's penchant for experimentation. She works with an array of vessels and enjoys developing whites in an area predominantly known for reds. In this episode, we meet a woman with insatiable curiosity, paired perfectly with a fearless attitude, taking on a prominent role in the Old Boys Club. Welcome to Desperada Wines. And it was amazing living on a vineyard, like being able to wake up every day and do this. Yeah. And walk up and down vines and actually learn that cycle. So I had been in, you know, restaurants and then sales and importing for, you know, since I was 18. So all my adult life, but I had never done production. And so all of this was theoretical. No matter what you learn in books and at school and whatever, drinking wine. This is all theory until you come and you do this every day and you watch the life cycle of a vine and you learn about soil and climates and microclimates and and what all of this means, then it's it puts it all together. It was like this final piece. From Cellar Media, this is The Winemakers, Paso Robles, California. I'm Louise Houghton. It's a chilly morning in Paso when I meet Valia. She's wearing jeans, boots and layers, like she's just stepped out of a Ralph Lauren ad. Her long brown hair is streaked with gold from the Paso sun, and she carries herself with a confidence and grace that only comes from experience. We invited her to hang out with us at our place and walk through the vineyard, which is where our day begins. I was born in Oregon, but my parents moved around quite a bit. Um, just they like to move. And so we kind of hopped back and forth between Arizona and California my whole life. Mm-hmm. My grandmother lived in, in California, down in Southern California in San Diego, and so uh, we were always... Um, kind of back and forth between the two places and um, ended up in Snowflake in the fourth grade. And uh, so I guess it's sort of home, but, you know, it was it was a rough place being a high schooler because there's nothing to do there okay. except maybe get pregnant. Drink wine? Drink, no, not wine. No, <laughs> booze and bad beer. Uh, my first wine ever was Strawberry Hill. It's pretty awful. but It's true. It is awful. But lucky for us, Strawberry Hill didn't turn Valia off wine forever. How I got into wine. 
I started in a restaurant, fine dining restaurant, when uh-huh. I was 18. It was really good food, really good wine list, amazing wine list, actually. And there was a psalm there, and he was just really passionate, and he was very adamant about educating the staff. Uh-huh. And so he would do these staff tastings every week with super baller, crazy wines. And, uh, yeah, I just I caught the bug. I caught the, I caught the gene. So I graduated, and then I decided to backpack through Central America on my way to Greece. I had a one-way ticket to Greece. I never used it. Doesn't matter. (laughs) Um, I backpacked through Central America and met a lot of really great Canadians. So from there, I hopped a Greyhound to Canada and ended up living there for four years. I was working illegally for this importer, so I wasn't there, like, completely legitimately. But I had always really wanted to do production, And then we decided to develop a brand um, out of California. So it kind of gave me this opportunity. And I was like, well, I'll go be the winemaker. I've got this. (laughs) Without knowing anything about what I was doing. Um, Just having a lot of wine experience. But I'm completely unqualified to even make that statement. Sheer determination, though, gets you everywhere. Well, sometimes, huh? What was it that drew you to Paso? What drew me to Paso, more than the terroir at the time, was more like the Wild West kind of feeling here. There's no rules. A lot less so than Europe, for sure. But uh, even less so than the Northern California wine region and Napa and Sonoma and stuff like that. And here, it's just kind of a free-for-all, right? Where you can just um, make it up as you go. And I had come up here um, to visit a girlfriend of mine, I don't know, probably early, like, 2000. And I just remembered it being really rugged and rustic and, and open and unpretentious. And I was like, I'm going to go there to start making wine. And I yeah. just did. I just pulled the trailer in and I went to the local, I went to a temp agency and got a job at the big co-op and went from there, figured it out. I've seen this. When you set your mind to something, you just do it. Is there any other better way? <laughs> no, like you were talking earlier about like, hey, let's, let's go see this thing. And then you think about it for months. Well, or you can just say, I'm going to do this thing, and then you just do it. Go, go forth and execute. So, yeah, when I moved here, it was literally um, starting from absolute basics. So I took a job as a cellar rat because I didn't know anything about production. And, you know... You can get there one of two ways. You either go to school, you go to enology or viticulture school, and you learn how to make wine that way. Or you learn by doing, which I don't think one is actually any better than another. They just get you to the end point a different route. Yeah. And I think that um, if you have a good palate and you have passion and you have determination, you're going to get there. It yeah. is a science, though, isn't it? It is, you know? absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, the palate and the, you know, the sensory stuff, that's obviously very, very important, and I think that you have to have that regardless of your, your scientific background and your, you know, like the... Um, you have to have that basis, right? Like, you have to be able yeah. to have... to know what good wine is in order to make good wine. Yeah. So you have to start there. And then from there, whether or not you went to school for it, you're going to have to learn some things like chemistry... <laughs> and whatnot um, to get you where you need to be 
uh, to be making consistently over time a brand that is successful in quality wines. So I think it takes all those things, but you can learn all those things. So I came here and did harvest working for other winemakers here in the area and making wine for this brand that we exported to Canada. And I did that and then started my own brand in 09. And then met my husband and uh, yeah. Bailey's husband, Russell, also happens to be an amazing winemaker in Paso. So we met with this big co-op where there was a bunch of small winemakers uh, and some bigger ones making wine in a large facility that allows you to share space and equipment. It makes sense financially if you can't afford your own winery and you can't afford your own vineyard and all the things. Um, And so I made my wine there. I made the wine for Canada there. And then he decided to go out on his own and do his own brand 100% of the time. So he moved out of the co-op and he moved into this building. And um, we had just started dating. And he was like, I need your help. Come with me. Because he couldn't afford employees or anything. So it was me and him and then his one seller guy at the time. And who's still with him. And he's amazing. His name is Norris. And so we moved into that building just the three of us. And he was like, bring your barrels too. And I had six barrels at the time. And I was okay. like, okay, thanks. Sure. <laughs> and um, uh, and we all worked there and we just kind of ran the show. We, we worked in his tasting room every Thursday through Sunday for the first six months. And it was just me and him and Norris in the cellar. And then slowly through time, my six barrels became like a hundred barrels. And I got it like a clay pot. And, you know, my focus changed a little bit. And so... Um, it was like, you need to find your own place if you're going to keep doing what you want to do. Right. Otherwise, we were starting to do this. And yeah. I'm cool working okay. together. Yeah. yeah, and it's it's great working together. And we I, I love that we're still involved in each other's businesses. But the winemaking is very separate. Like, I don't get involved in his wines. I mean, we always taste each other's wines and we give feedback. And I always want his opinion. Yeah. But I, I don't. Um, he makes his wine and I make my wine. And they're very different varietals, and we don't compete. It's not that. It's just that they're totally different wines. Yeah, there's no competitiveness between the two of you? Uh-uh. No, we have to sleep together. We can't compete in the <laughs> day and then, like, get along at night. That would be awful. Like, we're both competitive by nature, and so we have to um, – it's not competitive. It's incredibly supportive. So you don't say, oh, honey, this is a really nice wine, but mine's so much better. No. Correct. <laughs> Shh. We won't, we won't add that. Correct. Yeah, promise. yeah. No, it's, we, we never say that out loud. Um, and – yeah, I'm really glad that I actually moved here and started a brand and then met a dude and had a kid because otherwise I would have, like, fucked off again. And I'm actually really glad that I stayed here because I like it here. The Winemakers Podcast is supported by Winerist.com. Winerist.com is dedicated to making your wine and food travel simple. Discover experiences in over 130 destinations worldwide that are curated to fulfill all your wine and food dreams. You've heard from the experts. Now explore the regions that inspire them with winerist.com. I started off like, I, I can't afford a vineyard or land. I certainly couldn't back then. I could only afford a travel trailer. So I started buying fruit, like a lot of people around here do. And I work with about 14 vineyards now. And we actually bought a vineyard this year. And it's really, really amazing. But it comprises like 10% of our production. So the intent was never to be an estate winery and vineyard. But now I really love that I get to work with all of these different vineyards and different soils and different climates and different everything. Whereas if you work with one spot like this, 
This is it. All of your eggs are in one basket. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's so many variables in wine, but that's that's. It all starts with the farming for sure. Making sure the vines are healthy and making sure that they're they're well maintained and making sure that you are, um, you know, you're not going to make great wine with with okay fruit. You what was it about the Sauvignon Blanc that made you want to make that wine? Because it's not very common in Paso. It's not, and the fruit doesn't come from Paso. Um, the weather here uh, in Paso isn't probably the best for Sauvignon Blanc. It's pretty hot, but in this. Area. This is the Templeton Gap area, and uh, it's quite a bit cooler. It's a lot more moderated from the ocean, and um, you get a bigger diurnal shift. Um, and I'm hoping Sauv Blanc does okay up there. If not, then I just wasted two acres of grass, but um, <laughs> we'll find out. But uh, I, I love drinking Sauv Blanc. It's, it's my beer of choice. I don't drink beer, so... Can we drink some later? We will. Oh, yes. thank you. I brought some for you. <laughs> oh, yeah. so kind. It's, it's tasty. It's got good acid, and it's crisp, and it's refreshing, and it's lower alcohol, and it's incredibly diverse and really expresses the terroir and the vessel, and I love Sauv Blanc. Perfect at all yeah. times of the day. Breakfast, uh, lunch, yeah. and dinner, literally. <laughs> breakfast too, okay. No, breakfast. It's a great breakfast wine. Yeah? Absolutely. With eggs? Yeah. Do you want to drink like super heavy, big, dark Syrah at breakfast? To like, be honest, I don't normally drink at breakfast. <laughs> um, well, I'm learning. Hang out, hang out here long enough. No. <laughs> but actually, we're going to go inside and talk more about the, the wine itself in your vineyard. So let's do that. Okay. Some oh, thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Nice, nice walk. Yes. Can I just say it's so lovely, thank so you. soft and creamy, and you're right, could go very well with some eggs and smoked salmon and breakfast. Exactly, right? <laughs> yeah, it's breakfast wine. Mm. Nice. Oh my goodness, your yeah. designs are so fascinating and so beautiful. Art is a thing for you, isn't it? Yeah, just like this is, right? But I can't take any credit, you know, I can't even draw stick figures. My grandmother painted, and she was a great painter. She was a great artist. And I remember growing up thinking, I don't really have that knack. Um, but I did find it. It was in wine production. But I surround myself with people that are incredibly talented. And so I have been very lucky to work with really, really amazing people that develop these labels. And then through the years, as, as the wines have grown, so I started off with one wine, and then there was two wines, and there was three wines, and last year I bottled 17 different wines. 17. I know, it's kind of oh, silly. Wow. But some are just like a barrel. It just depends. Why not? Like, why not? If you're doing winery, shouldn't you be able to do these kind of things? <laughs> like, I don't have to answer to anybody. I have no partners. It's really... It's really nice in that regard. But, but then you um, have to think about the labels. Label. Yeah, so the labels change through time. So if you look at these three labels, uh, the one in your hand and those ones, I call I call this line the stalwart line, essentially. And there's three parts. There's the women that are all different interpretations. Uh, they're all goddesses. They're Venus, they're Diana. They're taken from seventh or 19th century French academic paintings. These are actually pen and pencil drawings of nudes from Gustav Klimt. And then it's on a very like industrial or um, uh, something just completely unrelated background. And so it's kind of this three part and it's um, strength and power and femininity and then bringing it into an element uh, of now and modern time. So um, yeah, they're just very symbolic and feminine but not girly and old and classic and timeless and yet very modern and now and here. The labels and designs for Desperada exude such feminine energy and power and sexiness 
The conversation naturally turns towards what it means for Velia to be pushing the boundaries in a male-dominated industry. Um, I try not to feel that on purpose. Like, I don't want my dialogue as a female to be, um, look at me, what I'm doing. Look, I can prove that I can do this compared to males. Mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of males, and there are times through the years where, of course, you feel the difference. You feel like you're treated differently or whatever. Um, and I just feel like if you give that too much attention, you start to get bitter and angry and... I don't, know. I don't want to be that kind of feminist. I want to be a real feminist that just is really proud of being, of doing what I'm doing. You know, um, I have nothing but females in my winery. Oh, really? That wasn't by design originally, but now it kind of is. Um, and I, I like it, and I like our dynamic a lot. And none of us are girly girls okay. at all. And it's, uh, it's not bickery. I mean, you know, we make sure we have tampons in the bathroom, but beyond that, it just seems like any other place. <laughs> Um, they're all really, really strong um, and driven females, and so, and those are the kind of things I want to pass on to my daughter as well. So, yeah, um, you know, yeah, it's hard to. It's like, what do you want your dialogue to be about being a female in an industry? You know, we we're our own business owners, so there is no there's no maternity plan, and especially in this industry, like this is agriculture, and so, um, you know, like my kid was born a couple months before harvest, and so she was at the cellar with me when she was, I don't know, six weeks old. Just and it was harvest, and you just did it. I was like, oh yeah, I'll just strap her on and I'll go to work, it'll be fine for the first year. And then it, like two weeks in, I was like, this is not fine. This is not gonna work, I can't operate a forklift, I can't move a barrel, I can't operate machinery, like, I need help. Yeah. But, but you know, you don't know what you need until you need it, so. Coming up with the whole brand design, it's gut-wrenching and stressful. And when we worked on this, coming up with this branding, it was like laying on a couch with a psychologist for like three hours. I walked away like sweaty and stressed and like it was draining emotionally, like in talking about why are you doing this and what are you going to make that's different? What's your niche? What's unique? You're just going to make some Cabernet just like everybody else. Boring. Um, but what came out of all of that was they came to me and said this. And I said, Yes. That is, this is it. And it's become me as much as I've become it. Um, and the name too, Desperado, is kind of a, it's a female version of a Desperado, but it's kind of a made up word, right? But it's yeah. to symbolize like this kind of outlaw and this kind of um, someone that marches to their own beat and kind of um, doesn't have to follow any rules, a lot like this area. So I think in time you find the uniquity of a wine is the uniquity of a person. So I started off with two wines, my very first finish. Um, actually, my first finish in 09 was one red, and it was, I had four barrels at the time. Um, and I remember in late 2010 or early 11, I was like, man, what am I gonna do with these four barrels? I wanna start this brand, I don't have any money, and I got this little loan, and I remember my husband was like, whatever you do, don't be an idiot, and don't bottle four different wines. So I bought, I blended them all together, and it's actually the one wine that I still make the same every year, uh, and it's this wine. So it is very Paso, for anyone that does like Bordelais varietals, I think in Paso Robles, you'll see a lot of blend of like Cabernet with Syrah and stuff like that. Because they go beautifully together. And this one's called Borderlands. 
Because it's the border between Rhone and Bordeaux. But each of the names have a different story. Sackcloth and Ashes is obviously a very biblical reference. Um, I'm not very religious, although this is pretty religious stuff that we're doing, spiritual stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, you know, somebody passes and you don the sackcloth and you toss the ashes and it's like this kind of bittersweet saying goodbye to something. And wine is very much like that, right? You baby these grapes from the moment that you have bud break and you watch those cute little clusters out there, little babies, and you, you go visit them all the time and you talk to them, sweet little babies, and you make sure that they're happy and then you harvest them and then you bring them into your winery and then you make wine with them. And then you put them in barrel or vessel or in forest, stainless steel, concrete, whatever you do for anywhere from six months to three years. And then you put it in a bottle and then you release it out to the public. And then I give it to you and I go, God, I hope you like this. I mean, that's really, that's yeah. a, a piece of yourself. And it's going back into the earth, which goes, it's this cycle of life. Wow. I mean, that's that's some deep shit right there. There it is. Yeah. Okay. Well, cheers to that. So cheers to that. And I do like it, so <laughs> you're good. <laughs> um, Borderlands, we talked about that one. I have a wine called Fragment, which is kind of um, like all the pieces that make up this thing that is. It's actually taken from an Emily Bronte poem. Um, the prisoner. And that's a blend, I'm guessing? That's all Sauvignon Blanc, but a blend of two oh. vineyards and four vessels. Okay. So we have all these wines, and then we, me, the royal we, <laughs> myself. And then I started looking at wanting to do these kind of exploratory, like single vineyard, single vessel wines. And so the whole point of this series is to look at the grape and the vessel and to see the difference. Like this is the same grape, same vineyard, um, different vessel. And so mm -hmm. usually in any given year, I do four to five of these so that, like, so you can see them within the same vintage even and the same grapes done in different vessels. The Winemakers podcast is inspired by the Winemakers of Paso Robles coffee table book. The Winemakers of Paso Robles coffee table book is the perfect gift for the wine lover on your list. It took more than a year of interviews and photo shoots to make this 328 page large format book. It's the perfect book to curl up with a glass of wine and escape to wine country. The Winemakers of Paso Robles. Check it out on Amazon.com and at WNMKRS.com. That's WNMKRS.com. There are only a few first editions left, so get yours today. The Winemakers podcast is supported by Paso Robles Wineries.net. Paso Robles Wineries.net is the best resource for planning the perfect trip to Paso. Decide where you want to taste, eat, stay and explore all in one place with the only comprehensive map of every winery, distillery and brewery in the area. You can also find tasting coupons and hospitality discounts. Text SPECIALS to 24587 for coupons. That's SPECIALS to 24587. And you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Paso Robles Wineries. PasoRoblesWineries.net is the best place to plan your next trip to Paso. Um, it's the last label mm -hmm. is called the Death and Resurrection series. And this series is, so this is Sangiovese, this is 15, but I've been doing this series since 2012. Um, and the first year was Sangiovese, Barbera, and Nebbiolo, and they were all 2012, and they spent three years in barrel. And then they went to bottle and I didn't release them for like a year after that. So everyone was like, what are you doing? These are dead in the water. These don't make any sense. Like these wines aren't marketable. No one wants to drink Barbera. That's like, it's so acidic. It needs to spend so long in bottle before it's done. Like they're just like, these wines are like super geeky, esoteric wines. And I was like, no, I believe in these wines. Like these are like, these are my, 
these are my babies, you leave me alone. And so I bottled them and that's kind of what like the death and resurrection is like. It's like they were kind of dead to everyone else but me and they were very special to me. And then, and with every bottling, they're just, they're super, super special wines. Like that 2012 Barbera is one of my favorite wines I've ever made. It's almost undrinkable because it's so acidic for like the first year and then you let it open up and you're like, yeah, that's awesome and so unique. At this point, we headed to the kitchen where Valia offered to cook me one of her favorite dishes, perfectly paired with one of her wines, of course. You're cooking this meal because you wanted to do the Sauv Blanc, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, while Sauv Blanc goes great with breakfast, I thought maybe it was a little, little late in the day for an omelet of any sorts. So we were just going to do some, I got some really lovely halibut from um, Pier 46, really awesome little fish shop in town. Okay. And so um, we're going to just do some uh, sautéed fish and some arugula salad with some peas and parmesan. Ooh, I'm going to ask you some me. questions though. Okay. Can you multitask? Yes, of course. Absolutely. I mean, you're a mother and, and a, a winemaker. I'm a and a mother and all those things. It must so, yes. be hard juggling all that. Uh, yeah, it depends on the day. The mother part is new, you know. I find that I don't feel as balanced in the last three years as I would like. So that's the real answer. But I th it's, you know, it's definitely getting better. And, we're, and I, we're, we're building something, you know. Like, the, the winery is really in its infancy. Like, it's only been around since 09, and I've only been in this building since 14. And that sounds like a long time sometimes, but it's not really. So, um, so I do this is the, a nice challenge for you, then. So this is super fun. I'm just like, I'm burning the olive oil already. What are you looking yeah. for? Uh, I'm just going to stick that fish on there. Okay. Um, so I put a little bit of olive or a little bit of garlic in the olive oil. It's very fancy. And I didn't realize this wasn't cut all the way, so we're just going to tear it like. No one can see this, right? You're not filming, are you? And what made you choose halibut? Because it's a meatier fish. It is. Well, you know, I like a little bit of weight. Like, you know, Sauv Blanc is nice and light and crisp, but it can, it can, it has some substance to it. And the, especially this one done in oak, which is the one that I brought today. Like, it has some weight on the background. I thought it would kind of go well with a, a meatier fish, not something quite as light as sole or tapia, but something's a little heavier, but not quite as oily as like a, a salmon or whatever. I like all fish though, I like it all. Do you think it's something that people should invest more in, food and wine pairing? How important do you really think it is? That's a good point. Um, I think that wine makes people really happy. I think when you, people drink wine and they start talking, I think the conversation just naturally flows. And I think that that's not the case with anything else. Wine is really unique in that regard. So I just think if it tastes good with it, mm -hmm. then drink it. So it's experimental. Yeah, I just... And that's the way it goes here in Paso Robles, And that's the way right? it goes here in Paso Robles. Over lunch, Velia tells me about her future in Paso. I would love to be able to um, dig a hole in the ground and put an M4 in the ground. And, uh, you know, family, obviously. I want to yeah. raise my daughter to be a strong, awesome, independent woman. Um, would you like her to wanna... follow in your footsteps? Uh, you know, I want her to do whatever she wants to do, right? I think all parents say that. But I remember there was a moment when, right after she was born... I was walking through the cellar and through a bunch of rows of barrels, and I was like, wow, like, 
what a, with with her in my arms, and I was like, what a cool thing! Like I didn't grow up with that. I didn't grow up multi generational winemaker, um, and I thought, how cool if she could be that where she grew up and then did that. So of course I want her to, but if yeah. she doesn't, I don't blame her. It's it's a tough business yeah. to to make a real go of it financially. You know, like we're not, this isn't, this isn't France or Italy where you have plots of land passed down through time with a winery and vines and all of that stuff. Like there's a, there's a different um, financial aspect to it. You know, we were at, at this event over the, this weekend and we um, tasted Bob Lindquist's wines and he's like, he's another great icon in this area. And, and standing next to him was, was his son who grew up making, you know, being with him and now he has his own brand. And that's a cool thing to watch. Like there's two generations. Like it's, you know, it's not like, you know, European where there's like five and six and seven generations, but we're getting there. Yeah. We're, we're getting there. Exactly. We're making some generations. It's nice yeah, to be so. part of a new movement. And absolutely, know, as you say, the wild west where you can pick and choose what you want to do. Yeah. Yeah. And if you don't like it, change it. Thank you, it's amazing. Right? Yeah. Not oversalted? No. You're good. <laughs> the Winemakers Podcast is a production of Seller Media, hosted by me, Louise Houghton. Executive Producer and Creative Director, Lauren Matic. Co-produced by Louise Houghton and John Meek. Original score, editing, and sound design by John Meek of 10 Minutes Early. Live sound engineering by Dean Lee. Additional editing by Miguel Coez of the Music Interval Theory Academy. And additional sound engineering by Brian Vasquez. The Winemakers series was created by Julia Perez. For show notes, links, and more, please visit wnmkrs.com forward slash podcast. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at The Winemakers Series. And please subscribe, share, and rate us on iTunes. Seller Media.